Hi, welcome back. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theatre. I'm Gabrielle. And I'm Nick. We're in We're Thieves. Yes, well, not exactly thieves, but beginning in 81, we called ourselves Thieves Theatre. But we didn't just do theater, we did conceptual guerrilla art projects, or what we called paratheatrical work. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and... No, I'm not re-recording that. (laughs) The social and political status quo. Which really means we just like putting sticks in anthills and watching the ants scurry and adjust to their new reality, their new status quo. Exactly. Uh, So in this episode... We want to get back to how the hill changed from this tight-knit community that we first entered into uh, to a very competitive, dangerous drug supermarket and how we responded to that change. So again, on June 16th, 91, not even seven months after we erected the teepee, I wrote this, all caps, a big change on the hill. A couple of days ago, Jenny and the crippled girl Coco moved into Tito and brother Billy's hut and started selling. Bad news. Because now the hill is no longer the closed enclave, the anti-Bel Air that it has been. Selling had never been tolerated on the hill, but now It's a drug supermarket, a constant parade of strangers in and out all day at will. No one does anything about it because the devil sitting on their shoulder whispers that it's actually rather convenient. Sue, Sammy, and Ali are upset and say they're going to rat on them. But yesterday, anything for a buck, Sammy hooked them up to electric Young kids with guns, scowls, and just a general creepy feeling prevail now. Sue wants to build a hut next to Ace. Ace hit her the other day, and Billy Toyota yelled at him saying she's not his girl and that she'll be dead in another month anyway, so why shorten her life anymore? This this was the hill now, right? Right. Uh, Sue was this frail, kind of slight young girl, who also had full-blown AIDS. Uh, she used to, to make a living, she used to steal slabs of steaks from the supermarket and sell them. Yeah, she had a buyer for some Yeah, I she had mm-hmm. regular buyers. I mean, the Bodega owners. I mean, not that they would eat them themselves, but they'd, they'd buy them for them. themselves. Yeah, not for resale, but mm. um, she tried selling them at the Hill a few times, uh, even to me, but uh, no nobody... No <laughs> Well, I don't know. Uh, food wasn't a big priority up there. There was food being brought up all the time. I mean, Sammy maybe, because uh, he was always proud that um, he'd always say, I have meat at least once a week. Once a week. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) That was his big thing. Right. Uh, When I drove Ace to Philly, we we all said, like, um, he was going to go to his sister's. And this was just about a month after we got up on the hill. Yes, he was ceremoniously leaving the hill, going to get out of there, straighten his life out, right? And he bequeathed his hut to Sue. Exactly. Yeah, so she was one of the initial residents of the hill, but I didn't know exactly where she stayed. Uh, But also, she was always kind of ghost-like. Yeah. There and not there, and so we didn't interact with her that much as much as we did the others no which is why we didn't include her early on in the initial residence on the hill you know she she was very ghost-like sort of ethereal right 
Um, and then she disappeared for a while and everybody assumed that she had died, right? And I don't know why Ace was so mean to her, right? He had just bequeathed his hut to her and uh, he, she was a friend of his. Except that I guess it was just another example of Ace not knowing how to treat women in particular, right? And I just assumed that it had something to do with uh, his mother, who was a prostitute, and he saw uh, how she was treated by men, and this was kind of his role model. Anyway, that's kind of my pop psychology analysis of why why Ace was so terrible to women. That, that wasn't the only example. Um, then there was also this rumor going around about Sue, right, that she abandoned the guy yeah. that... Uh, she, that was her partner when he was dying of AIDS because she went around telling the story of how she how she took care of him to the bitter end. And then uh, especially the brothers said, that's bullshit, she abandoned him, she left. So anyway, that, right. that's kind of Sue's story. And another thing that happened up there around that time that was pretty foreboding uh, that showed how things were changing fast Billy Toyota had gone to jail again, and nobody knew for what or how long this, how long he was going to be in this mm. time, right? But the next night, I heard a slight commotion, and through the Pico in the teepee, I had a few of them, uh, I saw Ace and Bobby, uh, Bobby supposedly a friend of Billy's, who he'd been hanging out recently, and four other guys I didn't know breaking into Billy's hut. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it was six black guys then breaking into Billy Toyota's hut, a white boy's hut, right? And, I mean, I could have, uh, I could have come out and maybe tried to stop it, but it would have been cast just as that, like a racial thing. Yeah. Uh, the, the way the white boys standing up for each other, just like it breaks down into like racial cliques in jail. Mm -hmm. Well... That and of course, I thought the gang would turn on me. The only person I knew in this gang action was Ace. Maybe me just stepping out of the TV and watching uh, would be enough to convict <laughs> Ace of his betrayal of Billy. But you know, I mean, more often than not, I wasn't standing up against things like this anymore. I, I, I stayed hidden in my peephole, pretending I wasn't even there. Yeah. Well, first of all, one against six. Well, and then the only one you knew was Ace, and who yeah. knows if cornered what he would have done, right? But yeah, there was definitely a racial divide that was starting to happen now. The, the Hill was no longer sort of this model of diversity, everybody getting along the way it was when we first got there. Anyway, then I wrote, lots of fighting and volatility. Ali hit Juan with a shovel today. A guy staying with Juan tried to strangle Jimmy. Meeting tomorrow with Sarah and John, the filmmakers, we're inclined to let everything happen as quickly as possible now. Who knows how much longer this whole thing will last with this latest turn of events. Maybe Nick is right. Maybe introducing a film camera is a way of fighting back. Right. The, the impulse is to fight back in some way. I mean, we were under threat. I mean, there, there are few options. It, it, it comes down to like a primal instinct, uh, fight or flight, right? right? Um, and we clearly decided to stay and fight, but the question is, you know, why? Why, why, did, why didn't we leave then? Yeah, well, 
few thoughts on that. My, but my mine is that at this point, the people on the hill were our friends. You know, Nick, um, you don't abandon your friends. You stay and fight along with them, even as they're starting to turn on one another, by the way, as everything was changing. Yeah, uh, and I, I did think that now that we were shooting with cameras and all the time that it would deter the selling. I mean, who wants themselves being filmed while they're copying, buying drugs, yeah, right? Yeah, but, but you know what? That's not, that's not what was actually happening. I mean, it's not like we were filming people copying or using. Uh, I think we were all just living sort of side by side and accepting everybody else for who they were, meaning Sammy scavenged and sold his stuff, uh, you know, at flea markets. Um, he hooked people up to electric for money. He rented out his part of his La Ponderosa. Uh, if people needed it, Louie and Jim collected cans. Red and Billy Toyota stole stuff and fenced it, like, you know, stealing out of car trunks or, or cameras from ATM vestibules or suitcases at the airport. That was kind of their thing. Um, and Gabrielle and Nick were artists and they did photo projects and plays and films. So everybody just side by side and now Coco and soon others uh, who worked for what was collectively known as Panama, they sold drugs. Right. But, you know, I think now it was sort of a kind of self-deception, really mostly a way for us to justify finishing the art projects we had already initiated, like the play to be performed in the teepee and the planned self-produced film. Both were projects we, we wanted the residents to be involved in. Yeah, I know, maybe self-deception, maybe, though, just kind of willful blindness what's the difference i guess some <laughs> i guess i mean you just close your eyes and keep yeah. on keeping on right uh yeah but without quite realizing it we did participate in this new world order right mm -hmm. that the drug trade had brought to the hill and even as we were vaguely hoping that art would bring the hill back to the way it was when we first got there, or at yeah. least reminded people, or I don't know. Well, I mean, basically, we were collaborators with the drug trade, you know, and we thought, yeah, art would save the day. Not. And Panama was the, like you said, the collective name of the drug dealer and his sales and management crew. Mm -hmm. Basically, it was Tony and his superior, Spencer, with his uh, wife, Robin, and, and then, of course, they had a crew of people selling for him, including Coco and Slim, or Dip, as he was called. Um, yeah, which is what we'll call him, Dip. Right. And, uh, you know, Spencer was a, a clean-cut, kind of middle-class-looking, <laughs> drug-free. Athletic. Yeah. And um, he was about 35 years old. He often rode up to the hill on, a like, a classic bicycle. And... Um, his crew black of, guy. He was a black guy. You got to yeah. say that because yeah. the racial thing becomes important. You know? Right, right. And his crew of uh, mm -hmm. sellers and um, enforcers were also all black. And, and the racial make of the hill now had changed from something that had been predominantly white. Mixed. I wouldn't even say, well, all right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Hispanic, we were, yeah, white. We, okay. 
We outlined it at the beginning. Yeah, okay. It was very diverse. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Spencer was the one who was watching sympathetically that day that uh, Sue Woodsman, Tony's Sue versus the frail one with AIDS, um, and I were seeing Elaine off. Elaine was that sort of sad, strung out artist, young girl, uh, who was being pinned by Larry. Her mother was a lawyer, and uh, she was at her wit's end. I went to their apartment one day. Um, I We outlined all this in, in another episode, but just to remind you, you know, she... Her mother and her just went at it, and it was she was just super sad, Elaine. She made me weep. Um, and her mother is like, why don't you just kill yourself? Get it over with. Just kill yourself. I can't take it anymore when I went to their apartment. In any case, we, after she had gathered all her belongings, and we, Sue and I saw her off to go into rehab, she got into a cab, and Spencer is the one who paid for that cat. Yeah, I mean, Spencer fancied himself like a caretaker or a guardian, or he told me he he was like a doctor. <laughs> yeah. He figured that everyone's addictions were not his doing, uh, but given that they were addicted, he'd take care of them better than somebody else, some other drug lord, I guess, right? Yeah, and while, while making a great living well, doing yeah, it. Well, <laughs> yeah, he wasn't saying that, of course, right? No. Uh, and he just said, I, I guaranteed my drugs are clean. And if someone wants to go straight, he said he'd help them. Yeah. And he told me all this very sincerely. And I was, uh, you know, at least half gaslighted by what he was saying. Yeah, sure. Uh, it, it's how he justified himself to himself, though, also, right? That it's spinning it like he did a good thing. The problem with this self-perceived kind of benevolence was that he beat people up pretty severely and and his victims all just kind of took it they didn't fight back uh, he couldn't do it with certain people like um i don't know bobby and red and tony woodsman and billy toyota and some of those others he couldn't do it with them right but well well yeah and they didn't work for him of course they, they probably bought from true. him and yeah. But they didn't really have an opportunity to cross them because they didn't sell or work for them. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but those that did were made an example of when they didn't toe the line. Like Dip. He once beat Dip up so severely for whatever infraction, who knows, probably stealing from him. Yeah, yeah, he stole $1,200 from him. That's what the story was. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. But in any case, he, he blinded Dip in one eye. He blinded him. I, I was outraged. Um, but, you know, Dip was like a, a, like a wounded animal. He just took it in stride. Life goes on, you know? I mean, that's, that's generally how the people on, on the hill were anyway. They just dealt with life as it came and moved on. No whining, no, gr- no, no grousing or, or holding grudges. Just, just life. That always fascinated me about yeah. these people. Uh, Tony Panama, as he was, as we call him, everybody called him, to distinguish him from the other Tonys that were up there, Yeah, um, he was Spencer's lieutenant, his enforcer. Uh, he first operated out of Ali's hut. Ali had left. And, uh, and then later on, he stayed with Dip when he was on the hill, which wasn't all the time. And he was a, a kind of 
gentle, almost sweet kind of guy. I mean, for instance, one time somebody OD'd up on the hill, and uh, not somebody we knew, but it was Tony who revived him um, even before the ambulance came. Yeah. Uh, so he was gentle and kind, I guess, except when he wasn't. <laughs> and he was dangerous physically. I mean, quick with a slap or a punch if somebody, some infraction or someone insulted him, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, everyone knew he had a, also had a gun with him or close by. He had been arrested uh, on uh, weapon charges on the hill, right. and, but he, he got out almost immediately. Yeah, there was, a, there was a strange vulnerability about him, though, also, which we'll get into later on when Mr. Lee dies. And all yeah, that. Yeah. It's just uh, th the complexity of these people is what made them so poignant. And he, like everybody else, th they looked out for the teepee. Yes. And I mean, in one of the fires, the teepee had caught fire and part of it burnt. Um, and uh, we took it down for you to patch. Mm -hmm. So the inner lining, including all the portraits, were just sitting there exposed. And uh, Mo, who had recently come up to the hill, but he, he had become our friend fairly quickly, he tried to take his portrait you had made of him, <laughs> and Tony hit him in the jaw and stopped him. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, I, I think I know why Mo did it. Mo, too, was a super sweet guy. Uh, he and Ray, uh, another black guy, uh, he was also blind in one eye, got there blind. Yeah. <laughs> Spencer didn't do that one. Mm. Um, they first moved to the hill around Easter. Because uh, I first recall interacting with them, uh, both of them, during that cookout right. that we had uh, on Easter, where you bought a lamb and you and Sammy skinned it, yeah. oh God, on, on this tripod that Sammy made and, you know, you hung it upside down and then Sammy made a, a spit that we roasted it on, you know, for four hours, taking turns. To Puerto Rican style. Puerto Rican style. Sammy was going back to his roots, back to his childhood. He was in, I was, I was going to say pig heaven, but um, lamb heaven. Um, and he's super excited. Me, not so much. <laughs> you had bought that lamb in the meatpacking district. Yeah and put it in our refrigerator in Brooklyn. And I opened that refrigerator and I was like, shit. I thought it was a poodle right. at first. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> no, but it was Mary's little lamb, right? <laughs> in our refrigerator. Right. Oh, God. And we, we made other food for the occasion, as, <laughs> as did other people. I mean, it was a great day, a, a, like a real celebration in a, a genuine celebration yes. in a genuine community, yes. right? Yes. And then what wasn't Jim Lardner there? Yes, too? Yeah. yes, Jim Lardner, the journalist who at the time was writing that New Yorker article that was going to come out a, a couple of months later. Uh, he had brought salad and popcorn and cookies. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know that because I wrote it in the journal, not that I remembered. Right. <laughs> um, and Juan <laughs> brought colored Easter eggs and then went back to his mother's house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where... You know, he didn't stay for the celebration, but that gave everybody an opportunity, especially Chinese Jimmy, to mock Juan some more again. 
He's going back to his mother's house. Is he going back to his mother's house? Is his mother giving him $5 for crack? Right. And, uh, you know, shut up, Juan. Shut up, Juan. (laughs) Which everybody agreed was the most used phrase on the hill. Shut up, Juan. (laughs) So, I mean, it was nice. And I I don't know, kind of hopeful, right? Yeah. Um, Mo and uh, Ray and Cano. Cano? Cano. Cano was the the Puerto Rican kid who... uh, uh, he, I don't think he used drugs, but it, and he didn't live up on the hill, but he, he came up and visited all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he often translated Mr. Lee for us, yes, which yes. was always fun. Yes, right? he was that interesting kid who learned Chinese before he learned English. I mean, Spanish he learned first, but he lived in Chinatown, and he right. hung around so many Chinese that he learned, as a young kid, Chinese before he learned English. Right. And, um, well, anyway, Mo, Ray, and, and him tried to... Uh, they came up the next si- Sunday trying to recreate the yes, experience. Yes, right? uh, which, was, which was sad and poignant. You know, you can't ever recreate something like that. Mm. But it, it just showed what a good time it was. But sitting around the fire uh, with Mo at, at that time, um, he told me the fire inside the teepee, which is where a lot of people told me a lot of things. Um, it just was conducive, and people really opened up. Um, he told me that he had a wife and stepkids upstate and how he was, quote, making good money, $8 an hour, <laughs> but how he just had to leave one day and he himself didn't quite know why. Uh, he told me about his mother and his sister who he hadn't seen in years because they don't want to see him and about his friendship with his best friend who he loves and who has AIDS, but he made me promise not to tell anybody. Who was I going to tell, right? I don't know the guy, I barely know Mo, but whatever. And and just the fact that his real name was Anthony and and that he wanted to leave the hill and find that Anthony once more, and but that he was too weak, it seemed to him, to do it and that he hates himself for it. And this was the story of so many people, this, this kind of self-loathing that was so poignant. You know, there's a guy called Hanka, but uh, that's another story. Um, I, I told Mo that everybody's weak. That's who we are as humans. The important thing is the struggle, that we got to keep struggling, but he didn't hear it. And he said he wanted to give us a present, but he didn't know what yet, and that he loves his portrait and what we've done here on the Hill, and that he wanted me to know that, of course, he understood why I can't give him money when Nick had already said no <laughs> because of this money lending thing, and you giving money to people was a constant, constant drama and trauma. Um, but Mo was saying, no, no, he understands, because um, a lot of times they'd hit me up, right? But he wanted a photo of his portrait to send to his mother in Brooklyn, who he hadn't seen in years. And I remember he wanted me to draw his cheeks fatter first to show his mother that he was doing well. Well, I'm thinking that when the drawings were exposed like that, he couldn't help himself and that he would just steal his. Now, I don't know who he thought we'd suspect first right. when his went missing, but I don't think he thought that far. Right. <laughs> and, and Mo got really into the photo project. Yeah. I mean, he loved sussing people out who were casing the hill to try to get a photograph and then sneak up on them and take their picture, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and like we said before, he's, he's the one who stopped the daily news from coming in. Yeah. 
um, by telling the reporter that uh, they wouldn't allow him to go into their daily news building or whatever, yeah. and, and so they can't come up here, right? <laughs> and then one day he brought us a present. He, I, he solemnly handed it to you. It was uh, uh, one of those, like, blue and white collectible Christmas plates right yeah, uh, yeah saying he'd love for us to have it and if he kept it it'd break anyway I, I mean we still have it right yeah it yeah it's in in our little crystal cabinet in the right. kitchen <laughs> right um all right so the Jersey boys the James gang as we call them the four brothers they were still around off and on but by that time the summer of 91 they were no longer in charge. Uh, they didn't have much power left. And they weren't there that often to begin with. Uh, but now uh, Eddie was already very sick with full-blown AIDS. And it was generally accepted that Spencer was now the new king of the hill. Of the drug trade, I want to say. The other power besides Spencer was you. You were the moral center. No, of the I, no I wouldn't say no. Yes, no, you were. It was were. not moral center. Yeah, was... yeah. You were the one encouraging people to stand up for themselves, to have a backbone, to respect themselves. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. Once stand it for was, what's right and wrong. Yeah, maybe once it was like that. But I was doing that less and less often. As the hill was changing, I was too changing, I think. At this, You know, I, I mean... It, <laughs> Okay. All right. Look, here's, here's a journal entry. Some scary rival drug dealer types stopped at the hill today to warn people to quit selling or that heads would roll. It's getting ridiculously crowded up here. Today, someone came up to Nick and asked him, can I help you? Right. Seriously? I right. wrote in the journal? Right. And then a few weeks later, after that, kids, quote unquote, came by uh, demolishing Ali's hut while, according to Ace, Ali was hiding out in Larry's. Apparently, he owed those guys $800. But Nick, now doubly annoyed because they threw a lawn chair into the garden. I had started a garden that everybody was participating in. Wants to rouse people to stand up for themselves and to protect their homes and their community. But they were too scared. Soon after that incident, there was some screaming and commotion on the street, and it was just two motorists arguing, but then Nick went to go see, and Mike, brother Mike, one of the brothers, and that's how I know they were still up there off and on, right? He held you back. Yeah, they were scared. You were fearless, frighteningly no, fearless. No, 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 not fearless. Nobody's fearless in a war zone, which was you know what the hill was becoming at that time and uh, i mean there was one night i remember we were i think we were asleep already and uh we heard uh oh, God. somebody robbing coco outside and coco at gunpoint they were threatening to kill her and she was begging pleading not to be shot i so i uh, picked up a shovel, and I mean, and I tipped out, tiptoed outside the, and sort of snuck around the teepee. Uh, While wow, my heart is racing, yeah, pounding. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, was, I mean, I was more than just scared. I was trembling probably from the adrenaline and everything, but I, I didn't even know what I was going to do with the shovel. But I, 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 I felt like I had to do something. But by the time I got around to see the scene, they had already left. And, uh, Coco gave them everything. Yeah, right. Uh, luckily, before I, I, I might have done something stupid. Thank but God, again, right? No, it right. resolved itself. Yeah, so many times. I mean, 
it was like grace or luck that saved us. Um, yeah, no kidding. Uh, Coco had recognized one of the guys, and they had taken off either in a black or white uh, Cadillac. Different people saw different things. I, and I don't remember if Panama believed her or if they punished her or anything like that, but um, uh, probably not. It was a real robbery, not a stage one. Uh, of course, how can yeah, you know, right? How, how can you know? Yeah, I, 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 no, it, it was. It was. Yeah. No, but they're not that good at actors. No. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm that good an actor. <laughs> no, she uh, was terrified. Exactly. Anyway, we can say we were naive or self-deluded or willfully blind or whatever you want to say. But ultimately, I got to say this, Nick, ultimately, we did believe in the power of art. We both did. Again, that boxing ring that you so fervently believed in, the boxing ring that would protect you. And we then decided to go full steam ahead with the play because that's what we did. And we believed in art, duh, right? Yeah, so that's September. We had an art opening for the photo project. And um, that photo project... The one we just described that Mo was doing, where you catch right. the things. You you had uh, took the photos and sewed them into fur and leather, and, and we hung them up on an eight-foot pole that was sitting outside the door of the teepee. Exactly. And we presented a piece that combined uh, playwright Heiner Mueller's um, play, Despoiled Shore, uh, Medea Material, and Landscape with Argonauts with our own writing that... Uh, presented the history of the landscape we were on and the play ran for two weeks in a row thursday through sunday (laughs) (laughs) just like any other off off broadway play (laughs) off 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 very off yeah (laughs) and we brought uh, strangers citizens exactly to the hill we had sent out a joint uh, press release for both the art opening and the uh, play and they were made of voice choice by uh the journalist, Sikar. Yeah. Yeah. So Annie, you and I acted in it and you and Tom found theater seats discarded and, and boat wreckage, uh, on the shore of the East river in Williamsburg, which is, why were the theater seats out there in the trash? Hard to fathom now because today, there's luxury condos there, uh, but back then it was a gigantic garbage dump. And we covered the seats in mailbags, and they fit nicely around the perimeter on the inside of the teepee, 15 of them, uh, with two construction buckets on either side of the door. So we seated 17 audience members, and we bought sand and spread it all over. And, you know, that boat wreckage, despoiled shore, Medea material, you know, the Argonauts. And the, the, we just, that was our, our set design that, that Tom actually uh, thought of. And then uh, we suspended a pine tree upside down over the fire pit, and we lit the whole thing by putting candles on on playing cards that we suspended uh, above the audience from the teepee poles. Uh, it was really beautiful. Yeah, it was, it was beautiful. A beautiful scene, yeah. yeah. Uh, and when the play began, there was a, a fire in the pit. And um, during the course of the performance, we, we poured water and trash into the fire and, to tell the story of like Collect Pond as how it got polluted over the years and had to be drained. Um, 
we made a, a small scale model of the city uh, that was supposed to re- represent Manhattan, mm-hmm. and and then we were able to hoist it during the play on this little pulley, right? And <laughs> underneath it was um, buried the live snapping yeah. turtle yeah. that the Arkansas trucker had gifted us, right? I mean, that trucker couple mostly delivered carp to the local Chinatown market. And uh, they came by to visit the teepee one day. And in, in the conversation, I told them about how the creation, the creation story mm-hmm. of the Lenape people, how um, uh, the muskrats piled up uh, dirt from the, underneath the water onto the back of the giant sea turtle. And, and that turtle continued to grow and the earth continued to grow until it was carrying the entire earth on its back. Right. Um, a- interestingly, this creation story actually sprang up simultaneously, independently, all over the world in different native cultures. Yeah, and even today, the uh, indigenous tribes in North America refer to the, the continent, North American continent, as Turtle Island. Yeah. yeah. And, and we told this whole story in the play as well. Uh, like right. I said, the history of the land, the Lenape, and we told the people on the hill, well, they mm. heard it right. every night. <laughs> right. Eight and, um, you know, when the couple said they were going to bring the turtle, I had built a pond, fenced-in pond. It was about six foot by maybe four foot, oval-shaped, mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the yard about 10 feet from the teepee, you know. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so we brought the turtle out for the performance, yeah. and uh, then he went back into the pond. I know. It's really hard for me <laughs> to talk about that. It's very painful to, for me to talk about this today, because uh, to me, that's another, on a personal note, another area of spiritual growth for me, um, how to treat the animals that coexist with us on this planet. Um, so today, not only don't you hunt and trap anymore, which is the way that you grew up, uh, you trap the mice in our apartment in live traps, and you bought a little vacuum thingamajiggy that you vacuum up the spiders with and release outside. Right, right, right. Well, you yeah, know? except now I am presently killing lantern flies and their nibs. Yes. I mean, they're beautiful insects, and it's, it, it's hard, hard to, to do. It's hard to do that, too. For those of you not from the New York area, we're invaded by an invasive species called lantern flies, and it's a big to-do. There's tons and tons of them and mm. you know you're supposed to kill them on the spot it's hard it's hard killing killing any little living thing mm. beautiful for me, things you I know say, um and and today also we do not participate in what we consider to be systematic animal torture that is our food system and um about the turtle i will say that there was a happy ending, which we'll talk about another time. At least I hope it was a happy ending. Um, but until then, we put that turtle through a lot of shit. No, and it pains uh, me. No, I, I, I don't quite feel that way. But I had a different relationship with Tortuga. Tortuga, as Then you did it. it. Yeah. But, you know, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. So Ace and Dip peripherally 
um, participated in the play, Ace would make an entrance at the end, <laughs> right? And he'd take a bow and say, survival until the bitter end. <laughs> that was his text contribution. Right. <laughs> Uh, the but it was very poignant, you know, he took a very serious bow, came in, and, and yeah. Right. Uh, and the performance after, the, when the, uh, the <laughs> performance ended with us removing the teepee cover mm -hmm. and leaving people exposed under the night sky and reminding them that they were in the center of a shantytown after they had gone through this play. Yeah, because they were transported. Yeah, right. And As you are with any theater piece, uh, right? And, yeah. uh, but hopefully we're getting food for thought about how the safety within walls is, not, um, <laughs> is an illusion, no matter where you are. And I don't know. But an anyway, usually the, the audience would just sit there for a while uh, thinking about what had happened uh, in the play mm -hmm. <laughs> and what they just experienced and now what they're experiencing now sitting here in the shanty town. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, some nights dip would walk up and say to everyone, did you like it? Well, it's over. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> it's one way to snap them out of their pensive right. <laughs> demeanor. Right. But you know, on a side note, I took, uh, I have an acting coach, and I talked to him about the TP project. This was like a couple years ago, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, I saw that play." I'm like, "What? <laughs> what are the odds of that? Right? It seated 17 people for eight nights." Um, anyway, Mo had also intended to participate by making a scale model of the hill out of popsicle sticks. He was super <laughs> excited about doing this, so we bought him tons of popsicle sticks. Right. But then one day, Tony Panama, in a fit of something, peak violence in any case, he tore down Mo's hut. We don't know why. We don't know if Mo did anything to provoke it or not. Uh, anyway, after that, Mo was not in a mood to make a scale model of the hill, obviously. But anyway, I wouldn't necessarily say that we were deceiving ourselves, Nick. We were fighting back by parading our own people through the hill and presenting art. Maybe we were naive about the long-term effects that it would have, if any, but I doubt it. I really just think that we were standing our ground and, and offering a different vision of the hill that was possible, that had been once. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, right? and, yeah, and throughout it all, I mean, to, even to the very end, in fact, people took care of the teepee. Yes, they did. And respected it, including Panama. Uh, Nobody ever disrespected that teepee. No. None and of Spencer uh, sponsored elaborate barbecues on the hill, like that Thanksgiving, which was... Uh, our one-year anniversary. Yeah, our one-year anniversary. Yeah. And uh, he, he wanted to um, help with the film. Yeah. I, he kept, and he kept bugging you about uh, drawing him and Robin, making a portrait. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Time. He was so, and I put him off at first because, you know, I said Nick to Nick, you might want to tell him so I don't have to do it to his face that he might want to actually come up and introduce himself and talk to me before I do his portrait. But he really, really wanted to be part of the community of everything. He, yeah. he wanted to fit in. And honestly, I don't think 
he I think he deluded himself. He was the one who was deluded about his intentions and his kind-heartedness and that he thought he was doing good in well, the world. He was self-deceptive. Self-deceptive, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, so, so, like us. Or? Yeah, all right. So, any case, I resisted for a long time doing his portraits, but then eventually I did it. And I did Tony Panama's portrait with his dog <laughs> in the portrait. And and Dips and, and this guy named Baith, who was the proudest fake gold chain seller on the planet. He really considered himself an artist. He could wax poetic about his craft, right? right? Uh, Really funny, really hilarious guy. Uh, He he didn't have anything to do with Panama either. Uh, You know, I think he was a drug addict, but he didn't sell or anything like that. But I wrote at one point, uh, it's becoming more and more wearisome to keep drawing after 25 portraits and all the changes on the hill, I'm over it. What's the purpose now? Yeah, I mean, you were just drawing people who claimed themselves a right to <laughs> be part of the hill. It wasn't like the original uh, crew, you know, that were almost like family. Yes. And But the Panama people were now definitely part of the fabric of the hill. Right. And about two weeks before Thanksgiving, there was that fire we were talking about where a quarter of the teepee burned down and seven of the portraits burned. And I'm not sure why we didn't stop then. It would have been the perfect opportunity, um, and and we could have taken it as a sign to leave. Instead, I patched the teepee and I redid the portraits. Yeah. I remember you sewed the, some of the portraits back together when they were half Yeah, signs. yeah, I was able to put all four brothers uh, on one portrait. Mm-hmm. I saved the part of one of the brothers that was still there and then redrew the other ones and put them all on one portrait. And, you know, it was just about a week after that Thanksgiving that we left on our month-long um, road trip to research the ghost dance and uh, the, the ghost... Wounded Knee Massacre. Right. And in um, mid-October... The Art Society's publication came out. Municipal that, Art Society. Yeah, yeah, right. That had the listing to TP as a memorial. And so because of this official memorial status, we thought we should bring the TP out with us west and offer it to the Lakota tribe living at the Pine Ridge Reservation. Yeah. You know, the, the plan was to leave the lodgepole standing with the inner lining up while we were gone, but we, you know, we determined that wasn't going to be a good idea. None of it was a good idea. Well, well, whatever, we yeah. didn't know. Instead, you know, I, I hooked an air pump up to the turtle pond to keep the water from freezing and told everyone what we were doing and told them we were counting on them to watch over the teepee and, uh, you know, when turtle, we left. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, by that time, the violence and, you know, the constant threats of violence had initiated a, a change in my mentality and my behavior. I mean, some of the new people coming and going were not just addicts. They were small, you know, two or three person kind of gangs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they came They're up creepy. to the hill to cop drugs, but also to sort of stand out and represent themselves, yeah, you know? Yeah, And now there were as many crack addicts as there were heroin addicts because crack cocaine was becoming epidemic in the 80s and early 90s. Um, and along with this change in drugs, as we said, the racial makeup of the Hill also changed. The four New Jersey white boy brothers were now mostly absent. Billy Toyota was in jail. Um, and most of the residents were now 
black. Right. And not think, like us. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, this change sort of, I mean, it increased the number of confrontations, I think, towards me. I mean, the chief, but now just as often referred to as the white boy in the teepee. Yeah. And uh, even though the real chief and was the drug dealer, Spencer, Panama, and they all knew Tony or, you know, Tony Panama or someone was on the hill as protection against drug thefts and assumed they were armed in some way, you know, with a knife yeah, or yeah, machete yeah. Tony or Tony had gotten arrested on, on a guns a weapons charge, but then was released right away for whatever reason. I don't know. Yeah, right. So the confrontations were laden with that kind of aspect. I mean, somebody might die here. Uh, most of the times in the confrontations I had out in the yard, it, it brought Tony Panama out, out of his hut, and they, and they were quelled by his presence for the most part. Uh, I mean, he was bigger and more dangerous looking than me, of course. And because uh, it was usually black confronting blacks or you know so it was a mixture of something like that and whatever the white boy chief (laughs) i mean i was just like one of the lieutenants in the drug war now in some stupid way right what were we doing honestly you know it's i know we were stupid naive artists but more than half of me was uh you know was on a something else now I was someone else. I started down a road yeah. on a kind of yeah. insane mission, a mission that I couldn't explain to you or to others uh, or even to myself. I was going to say, I don't think you could explain it to yourself then. Right. Yeah. Even from the beginning, living on the hill, there was this unrealized vision. I only see it now in hindsight, in studying my psychology back then. I was reliving and trying to resolve, rectify a guilt that I had from trauma 20 years before that. Yeah. And, and I thought I had buried and was done with. You don't and bury or get over something like that? No, it was uh, the trauma of my heroin-addicted uh, brother that I... Who died. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so next episode, we're going to tell you that story because um, it does go a long way towards explaining what we were doing on the hill in the first place and why we stayed there even after these big changes we were just talking about and we just discovered it. It's one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast, but we did a lot of talking about it and suddenly realized that and it, like most things in life like that, it seems obvious now. Well, it seems obvious, but you know, that means, you know, going into yourself and seeing yourself. I mean, it's, it's not apparent until you really study what your yeah. psychology yeah. is, right? Uh, so we're going to sign off now. But before we do that, we'd like to encourage you to engage with us on any topic. You can write us at uh, podcast at thiefstheater.org. Uh, we'd love to hear from yes, you. Yes, on any topic, like he said. And you know, thank you for listening, as always, right, to the Hill by Thieves Theater. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe, like, and click that bell so you know when our next episode is out. Yeah, and check out our website at thiefstheater.org. And follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TP on the Hill, T-I-P-I and, on the Hill. And threads. Now, I guess, I, I don't know you <laughs> the point of it. <laughs> All right. All right, thanks for listening. Till next time.